1731, one of the world's great poets and songwriters, hymn writers, was born. His name is William Cooper, and he was a man who struggled with depression throughout his entire life. Uh, two of his contemporaries, you might know their names, John Wesley and George Whitfield, uh, they were both men who were kind of the architects behind the Great Awakening. Benjamin Franklin, that might be a more recognizable name for you, actually got a hold of volume, one of his volumes of poetry and gave it a good review in his newspaper. William Cooper was born just outside of London. He was a preacher's kid. He was one of seven children, only two him and his brother John made it through infancy uh, to actually go on with their lives. All his other siblings passed away. And in fact, his mother passed away giving birth to the seventh child four days after the seventh child was brought into the world and also passed away. And that was when William Cooper was six years old. So this young little boy without a mom struggling, wrestling with life. And his dad says, I had no way to try and figure out how to help little William. So dad sent him off to a boarding school. Now it's evident through his poetry and through his songwriting that he was bullied while he was away at boarding school. In fact, to the, a point where we actually call it abuse today. When he was uh, later in his life, in his twenties and fell in love uh, with his cousin, Theodora. And he was actually allowed to date his cousin for about six years. And then after that six year, he was allowed to get engaged to her. But then at the end of that seventh year, his uncle, the father of Theodora, broke it off. And we're not quite sure what the reason was, but it was heartbreaking to William. And he spent the rest of his life single. Biographers talking about William Cooper, don't say that his depression just came from his circumstances, although there is plenty in his circumstances to warrant depression. But they also give voice to what they called in that day the disease of melancholy. In other words, a predisposition for depression. And in fact, at 21 years old, Calpo writes, Cooper writes, day and night I was upon the rack lying down in horror rising in despair. He was institutionalized for his depression, and at least four times that biographers can find, he tried to commit suicide, and he constantly suffered about his salvation and believed he was eternally damned. And yet this one man gives us a tremendous amount of poetry and hymns. Now, William Cooper was most influenced by a guy named John Newton. You might know John Newton because John was the guy who wrote the most famous hymn of all time, the hymn Amazing Grace. And Amazing Grace is actually from a collection of hymns called the Omni Hymns. It was only as a place in London where they lived together. And that collection had about 270 hymns. John Newton wrote 200 of them and... William Cooper wrote another 70 of them. And the, most, the two most famous ones that Cooper writes are, there is a fountain filled with blood. Some of you might know that, especially if you've grown up in the church. And another one called, God moves in a mysterious way. 
And I would love to read you a couple of stanzas from this hymn because it is beautiful. It says this, God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform, he plants his footsteps in the sea, rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain, but God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. I love the beautiful words of this hymn and it's just a representation of Cooper's work. Newton and Cooper were also involved in the work of the abolition of slavery. Uh, if you know the story behind John Newton, he was actually a, he was a captain on a slave trading ship when he became a Christian and he worked the rest of his life towards the abolition of the slavery movement. And he encouraged Cooper in the same. And one of the poems that Cooper wrote is called The Negro's Complaint. And that changed the tide in his day against slavery. And it was one of the poems that Martin Luther King read often in his work against the abolition of slavery. Now, Newton and Cooper's friendship might be summarized as this, is one man who struggled with depression, and one man who struggled to help a man who had depression. And their story is two men focusing each other on God and learning to sing a new song. And because of the songs that they wrote together, many have seen and heard and trusted in God. Now the outcome of Cooper's story is Rather sad, actually. He never really overcame his depression. In 1800, he died from dropsy, and he died with great sadness. But he is a life worth remembering because of the hymns and the poetry that he leaves behind that have pointed us towards God. Now, depression is a massive problem in our society. Gallup says that 29% of U.S. adults report being diagnosed with depression. Now, I want you to hear that. 29% not say they've had depression, but have actually been diagnosed professionally with depression. Women's rates of depression climbed from 26.2 in 2017 to 36.7, over 10% in 2023. Antidepressants are a $15 billion industry in 2020, and expected to rise to $18.3 billion by 2027. Pharmacoeconomics published a 30-year report tracking the true cost of major depressive disorder and said it was somewhere around $326 billion a year. Now, probably the saddest stat is those stats that come from our teenagers because Pew report... Reported, Pew Research reported that depression rose 59% in teenagers between 2007 and 2017. That is before COVID. So you can kind of guess what has happened since. 
And the CDC notes that 42% of students felt persistently sad and hopeless, and 22% of students seriously considered suicide. One psychologist told me that 80% of us, that's 8 out of 10, will wrestle with depression in our lifetime. And in the same way that our bodies might be coded for cancer, maybe our brains are wired for depression. Well, now that I've depressed you all, we are in our series called Free Indeed. And we've been dealing with lots of subjects that we've been trying to find freedom on. We've talked about discontent, bitterness, religion, um, a stuck marriage. We've talked about the freedom from the love of money. And today we tackle freedom from depression. And I want you to know there's only two types of people here in this room this morning. The stats prove it clearly. And that is this. One is the people who struggle with depression. And that's a lot of us. And two is the people who can help people who struggle with depression. And that's the rest of us. There's only two people in this room today. The ones who struggle and the ones who can help. And God wants to speak to each one of us today. So what is, what is depression? What is depression. It's in his acclaimed book, The Noonday Demon, An Atlas of Depression, Andrew Solomon says, grief is depression in proportion to circumstance, while depression is grief out of proportion to circumstance. See, what I want you to see is depression is involuntarily disproportionate grief. It is not something that someone chooses and it is not always related to circumstance. It is a sadness that comes that is disproportionate to circumstance. The great Charles Spurgeon, he was a preacher in London, and he's actually called the Prince of Preachers because his preaching has been so helpful to so many people. He struggled with depression, and he is very vocal about this. And this is what he says about depression. He says, the mind can descend far lower than the body, for in it there are bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. I find that to be a helpful description of depression. And I can tell you my own life has been one that has been marked by depression. When I was in high school, I used to have these episodes that would come over me about once a month, maybe one to two days that I just couldn't figure out. And almost like I, I, I just couldn't get my operating system to get clear. And it was just foggy and just complete discontent and just complete like there's something missing here. And that began to make its pathway to even more depression the older I got. And I, at one time in my life, was on antidepressants trying to deal with that overwhelming, disproportionate grief in my life. And it's been a cycle that has just worked its way through my life over and over again. And it's not just me. I have, I have great friends who struggle with depression and friends that I would want to just look into their life and pray and say, God, would you free them from this? Would you bring healing? And yet God has not chosen to bring healing. And so trying to figure out how to help them. 
The question is, how did William Cooper fight this battle? How did John Newton come alongside William Cooper in this battle? And whether it is you that are struggling with depression this morning, or maybe your spouse has been struggling with this, and you're like, I, I, I don't even know how to help. Or maybe it's a child or a friend. You're like, I'm not even sure how to help. I believe that God wants to speak to us this morning. And we want to see what the Bible says about depression and how we can be set free. So would you turn with me in God's Word to Psalm chapter 40? And this is going to be our text this morning. Psalm chapter 40, we're going to read verses 1 through 3 as our text. Will you stand with me as we honor God's Word? And David says this, the psalmist, he says, I've waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon the rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our Lord. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word, and you may be seated. As we tackle freedom from depression, I want you to see five truths from Psalm 40. And the first one is this. Scripture gives a voice to depression. Scripture gives a voice to depression. So as we've read in Psalm 40 verse 2, we saw the imagery here of the pit of destruction and the miry bog. And David is giving us this idea of an inescapable pit in which things get worse and worse. And then he refers to it as a miry bog, which is a slippery place. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you've been in a place that is really slippery, maybe some slippery clay or something, and you find your way to your feet only to fall again. And you're never really able to find your footing, and you're always in that place where you're just falling over and over Other psalms give a voice to depression. Psalm 63, too, says, In a dry and weary land where there is no water, you get this idea of never being quenched. And Psalm 42, verse 5 says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And it's as if David is off to the side of his own soul, looking at his soul, saying, What are you... What's going on here? It's not your circumstances. It's like, what? And he's trying to speak to his own soul. Why are you downcast? Why are you feeling this way? He's like, I can't even explain. I can't even describe why I feel this way. Why are you downcast, oh my soul? Entire books are written by people who are depressed. Consider Jeremiah, Lamentations. Consider the book of Jonah or Job. And characters like Job, Elijah, King David, Jeremiah, Jonah, even the Apostle Paul who said, hey, God, if you would take this thorn in the flesh from me, and we don't know what that thorn in the flesh was, but my bet is it had something to do with depression. He's like, would you take this weight of sadness from me? But what what Scripture makes really clear to all of us is that depression is not abnormal. Depression is not abnormal. Sometimes the church has not done well at dealing with depression. You know, we come in on a Sunday morning together and we're like, let's just praise the Lord. Let's just, and for some of you who came here this morning, you're like, that was the last thing I wanted to do. 
That was the last thing. I, I just even wrestled with getting out of bed this morning. Do you not know how hard it was for me to just get here this morning? And we're like, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And not that that's bad, but it's sometimes hard. And we don't give voice to some of us who walk into this room not feeling that way. And what scripture reveals is that depression can be a result of several factors. In the book of Job, it's really due to his circumstances. It's the losses that come into his life that turn his heart inward and he begins to deal with this depression. I think David, you could look at and read through the Psalms and the writings in 1 Kings and 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and you could look at his life and say, I'm pretty sure part of it was circumstances, but I also think he had a disposition to depression. In other words, it was some sort of biology within him. I mean, the guy plays the harp for crying out loud. You know, you know that he has some sort of disposition towards this, towards thinking, towards deeper, towards... And oftentimes I've wondered as I've read through the Psalms if when David is talking about the enemies, he's also talking about the enemies in his head the ones that he's trying to contend with over and over. And I don't know if you've ever read the Psalms that way where it's like not just the enemies that are out there, but it's also the enemies that I can't seem to quiet right here. I think the scripture also makes it clear that the consequences of sin are sometimes responsible for depression. And the books of Jeremiah and Lamentations show us that the Israelites being in the sinful patterns that they were in, took them into dark times. And so sure enough, lamentations, it is a lament from Jeremiah about what's happening. Maybe even spiritual attack can be a reason for depression. If you look at the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, when you get to the end of it, he has an entire treatise on protecting yourself against the outward working of the enemy who walks around like a growling lion looking for someone to devour. And so maybe depression can come as a result of spiritual attack. And if, if you've relegated your thinking to depression is just sin and people just need to snap out of it, you are naive at best and ignorant at worst. And I think that the Bible comes and rebukes us this morning for trying to simplify depression in this way. Let's agree that depression is far more complicated than we think. Consider what Zach Eswine says, and in fact, I would love to give you a resource this morning that I think would be very helpful Um, Zach Eswine is a pastor who wrote a book about Spurgeon's depression. He called it Spurgeon's Sorrow. And so I've got a few quotes from that this morning, but I would encourage anybody who is wrestling through depression to pick up this book. I think it would be very helpful for you. But this is what Zach says. He says, contrary to what some people tell us, sadness is neither a sign of laziness nor sin, neither negative thinking nor weakness. On the contrary, when we find ourselves impatient with sadness, we reveal our preference for folly, our resistance to wisdom, and our disregard for depth and proportion. 
And I would just say to you today, if you are struggling with depression or you know someone who is struggling with depression, can we offer this great hope that the Bible actually gives a voice to this? It is not a sin and there are plethora of reasons for it. And let me go one step further. If the Bible gives voice to depression, who are we to belittle it? And so if you have been a person who has either tried to belittle depression in your own life or you have been someone that has tried to belittle depression in someone else's life, we need to repent because the Bible gives voice to it and takes it very seriously. And the question I want us to consider is, could depression actually be an unwanted friend? Because if Scripture actually gives voice to depression, then the real problem might be that we have not stewarded depression well. And so maybe depression is actually an unwanted friend. That's how I've learned to describe it in my life. Have you guys ever had an unwanted friend? You know, maybe you have committed to going on a diet and you said to your friend, you know what, I'm, I'm going to commit to going on a diet. I think it would be healthy for me right now. And then you said to that friend, will you help me? And the friend is like, sure, I'd love to be that friend for you. And then when you guys go out to eat together, the friend begins to say, are you sure you should eat that right now? Are you sure that you should drink that milkshake? Are you sure that you should buy those two quarts of ice cream? And you're like, I appreciate you being my friend, but you're an unwanted friend right now, you know? Or maybe you decide to join the gym together. And you're like, you know what? This is going to be awesome. This is my time. We're going to join the gym and, and we're going to go to this together. And that friend is the one that holds you accountable. And so 4.30 in the morning, they're like, hey, you up? You ready? You're like, you are an unwanted friend right now, for sure. Like, I do not want you in my life. Or maybe you've confessed to somebody, hey, I'm in a difficult relationship and I'm really struggling right now. And someone has said to you, you need to hang in there. You need to press in and see what God has for you. And you're like, that's not what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear that the other person's wrong and that I'm in the right and that this, and they are an unwanted friend in your life, but they are a friend nevertheless. So I wonder if depression could be an unwanted friend. In Ecclesiastes verse seven, or chapter seven, verse three through four, Solomon says this, sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart, is, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Have you ever considered the gift that a funeral is to us? Have you ever stopped just to, to go, wait a man, I know this is one of the saddest events. And even if it is a celebration of life, it's still a hard, but what's happening in that moment is they're giving you a gift of remembering your own mortality, of stopping and going, all right, I only have a certain amount of days left. We, only, we all have a certain amount of days left. And maybe the People are surrounding that person, are up there giving this person accolades and saying beautiful things about them, but the whole time you're sitting there going, wow, I am reminded of my own mortality. I'm reminded of my own limits. 
And Solomon is saying that is a gift to us. That time of sadness helps us go deeper, helps us think, are the things that I'm really spending my life on right now worth it? And it makes you become self-aware. Jesus, when he started his public ministry, the first thing he says in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 4, he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And he starts his public ministry by saying, Blessed are the broken, blessed are the sad, because the sad and the broken realize their need for God. Do you see the gift that depression could be? Do you see the unwanted friend if we would just say, can we just stop for a minute? Can we be sad? Can we ask the question of why? What's happening? Can we slow down and ask God, what are you up to in this moment? Zach Eswine, again, he asked this question where he says this. He says, it is an act of faith and wisdom to be sad about sad things. It is an act of faith and wisdom to be sad about sad things. Could it be that depression is an unwanted friend and that we've not stewarded it well? Could it be that in our depression, we've tried to escape it rather than going deeper and doing the harder work? And what do we learn then from Psalm 40 in terms of going deeper, in terms of doing the harder work. So this brings us to our second point. The scripture tells us what to do in depression, and it says this, wait patiently upon the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not really fond of the word wait, and I'm not really fond of the word patient either. And so when they put them together in scripture and they become double intensity, I'm really not fond of it. Right? I mean, it's one thing to just wait. It's one thing to be patient, but to wait patiently. And you can see what God is saying here. He's got double intensity on our lives. He's saying, wait, slow down, be patiently. He's saying, stop and listen. Spend time in quiet. Become aware of me. Become aware of yourself. And I can tell you, in the times that I have stopped and just waited patiently upon the Lord, I become aware of his presence, yes, but also upon aware of myself. And it's true that God has made us biological, he's made us spiritual, he's made us social, he's made us intellectual. And sure enough, as God slows us down and as we wait patiently upon him, does he not bring all these things to light? And maybe he would speak to you about your biology and say, you know, maybe you need to go see a doctor about these things. Maybe you need to start thinking about what you're eating here. Like there's so much help in the medical community as far as like one of my brothers struggles with depression and he found out that gluten was something that really was, a, was hurting him. And he's like, man, I just took gluten out of my life and it transformed everything about the way that he was thinking amazing just to stop and be patient wait before the lord and let him begin to reveal that maybe it is god awaking you to the need to actually change your circumstances to say you need to get out of here 
You need to get out of this sinful pattern. You need to get out of a sinful pattern that someone else is doing that is contributing to your depression. Or maybe he's saying, I want you to slow down, wait patiently, and he is going to awaken you to subdue your expectations of life as he has done to me so often. What does God do when we wait patiently? I think this is probably one of the most beautiful things in all of scripture because Psalm 40 verse one says, when we wait patiently for the Lord, he inclines his ear to us. Do you know what that means? That means God actually changes his physical demeanor, his presence towards you. So you can imagine that God is facing away, but when you're sitting there waiting patiently for him, the God of the universe turns towards you and inclines his ear to you. You have the attention of Almighty God. His physical presence changes towards you. And some of you might say, I have a really hard time believing that. I have a really hard time that the God of the universe actually has time. Like he actually has the wherewithal to change his countenance and incline his ear towards me. And Spurgeon responds this way. He says, some of you may be in great distress of mind, a distress out of which no fellow creature can deliver you. You are poor nervous people at whom others often laugh. And I can assure you that God will not laugh at you. He knows all about that sad complaint of yours, so I urge you to go to him, for the experience of many of us has taught us that the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. And I can tell you that has been my experience. And some of you might say, well, before God would incline his ear towards me, I need to work harder, I need to try harder, I need to do better. I mean, I don't even deserve God's attention right now. I'm, I'm not waiting patiently long enough and I need, to, I need to do more. And yet Spurgeon, again, he would say this, perhaps you are not well or you've had an illness that has told much upon your nervous system and you were depressed and therefore it is that you think that grace is leaving you, but it will not. Your spiritual life does not depend upon nature, else it might expire. It depends upon grace, and grace will never cease to shine till it lights you into glory. And I tell you this morning that when we wait patiently upon the Lord, it's not because of us that God inclines his ear to us, but it's because of him and his love for us and his grace upon us. So the first step in freedom from depression is realize the unwanted friend it can be and wait patiently. And what does God say he'll do when he inclines his ear to us? Well, the third thing, scripture tells us he will pull us up. He will set our feet upon a rock and make our steps secure. You see this imagery that that David is using here of the pit of destruction of that slippery clay. He's basically saying, you're living in an impossible situation. You've been trying to get yourself up out of this pit and it just keeps getting worse. You've been trying to find your footing and, it, and you keep slipping. It's not getting better. And the imagery points here to one who is dead, who is defeated, who is unable. But what does it say? It doesn't say 
pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It says, he will draw you up. He will pull you up. And the picture here that David is painting is one of resurrection, of Jesus when he is dead on the cross, of God resurrecting him and pulling him up, and him doing the same to us, resurrecting us. And then it's not just a matter of, hey, I will draw you up. But he says another thing. He says, I will set your feet upon a rock. And that rock, when we see that word in Scripture, it almost always points back to Christ, that we're setting our feet upon the rock of Jesus and who he is. Not just resurrection, but our lives are now built upon that firm foundation and our footing is secure. See, at first glance in reading this, you might say, oh, well, when God talks about pulling us up, it means that he's going to take us out of that depression or he's going to take us out of that set of circumstances or he's going to heal our mental illness or he's going to take away the consequences of our own sin and, and, and take away the consequences of other people's sins against us. But that's not what this verse is saying. It's actually saying something much more beautiful than that. It's, it's promising the resurrection power of Jesus over and in our lives. See, the hope is not in the circumstances changing, but in the one who is over all the circumstances. And the hope is not running away from our depression, but knowing that in the midst of it, Jesus is right there with us. And can I tell you that the number one remedy for me in all of my ups and downs with depression you know, there's been so many like three-point sermons of do this and do this and do this and do this. But I can tell you the number one thing that has been encouraging to my soul is I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because circumstances can shift. Bodies will fail. Hormones get wacky. And we can fall into sin and other sins can affect us, but nothing can stop the resurrection power and presence of Jesus. He is with us. That's the beauty of what God does when he says, I will never ever leave you nor forsake you. A much greater gift than saying, I'll take away all of that over there. He says, I will be there with you in it. The fourth thing that he tells us, the scripture tells us, is that he will give us a new song. Now, what is the significance of a new song in a time of depression? It's this. One of, one of the characteristics of depression is that it causes us to focus on ourselves. And in times of depression, we're abnormally, ab abnormally focused on our own plight, our own struggles, our own ability to deal with things. I know in my state of disrepair, I cannot see anything anything other than myself, my limited resources, my limited ability, my mortality, my reasoning, my possibilities, and my own knowledge of my circumstances. I can't see anything beyond that, but as I wait patiently for the Lord, what does God do? He begins to take the attention and says, look at me, look at me. 
Have you ever considered the pattern that we see in the Psalms? And this is what's so beautiful this morning is when we look at the Psalms, he actually gives weight to depression. And so, so many of the Psalms start with, I'm struggling with this. My enemies are against me in this. The weight of my own sin is against me in this. The weight of other sins is against me in this. The voices in my head, I cannot stop them. But then partway through the psalm, it will say something like, but you, O Lord. What is happening? The psalmist, he's getting a new song. He's getting a new song. In Psalm 3, verse 3, but you, O Lord, are the shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Psalm 31, 32, 32. That means he's 31 verses into this psalm. He's laid out his complaint to the Lord. But then in verse 32, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Psalm 71, verse 7. The first six verses, he's been laying out his complaint. But you, O Lord, are my strong refuge. Psalm 98, 92, verse 8. But you, O Lord, are are on high forever. And then Psalm 102, verse 27. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Can I tell you that about one-third of the Psalms have this pattern in them? Where they say to you, they say to me, it is okay for your sadness to be realized and to be real. But in it, as we wait upon the Lord, he begins to give us a new song that focuses on God and not focuses on ourselves. And we begin to see his resources, his limitless ability, his his immortality, his reasoning, his possibilities, his knowledge of the circumstances. You see, the genius of John Newton, when he finds a friend like William Cooper, and he sees the despair that Cooper is in, he says, hey, let's go and sing a new song. Let's, I hear you, I hear the depression, I see, and let's focus not on you, let's focus on on God. And there's 70 new hymns that Newton comes alongside Cooper and says, these are yours to write. This is the new song. These are the countless poems that you will do to take the attention off of yourself and have a new song, and you'll see Jesus in the midst of it. And could it be that these men helped each other? You see, um, Cowper Cooper, he had this nightmare when he was 42 years old. It was in 1773. And he calls it a bout of madness. And he has this nightmare that he never recovers from. In fact, after 1773, he never goes back to church. He always thinks he is damned from that point on. And yet Newton continues to be a force in Cooper's life. And I just wonder, as... Newton looks at this man who is struggling with depression that instead of saying, snap out of it, dude, or man, you've got a sinful heart. Like you just need to praise the Lord. You just need to snap out of this. That Newton began to say, 
Are there ways that I could speak God's grace into this man's life? Are there ways that I could come alongside him and help him with depression and find new poems, new songs that he could hear that would... And sure enough, this song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I see. Maybe... Maybe it was because of Cooper that John Newton got to write that life-changing song that means so much to many of us that we've heard that song. One man being helped to overcome and the other understanding grace all that much more. So as we realize that depression could be an unwanted friend and we wait patiently upon the Lord and he gives us a new song, he draws us up, there's one more step here in this song that is really beautiful and it's this. Scripture tells us to share that song. In Psalm 40 verse 3 it says, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And then he says, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Well, how does that happen? And as he's sharing that song. And I have to tell you that in my own struggles with depression, when I wait upon the Lord and he gives me even a small new song, a tiny little thing, that the best thing I can do is take that little thing and repeat it. Maybe it's to tweet it or exit. I don't even know what to say these days. But just to repeat it somewhere, to put it on social media. Maybe it's to text a friend and say, can I tell you what God said to me this morning? Maybe you were in the pit of destruction this morning. Maybe you were in the miry bog and you needed to hear this this morning. And you begin to text your kids, your spouse, your friends, your colleagues at work. And you say, can I just tell you a little bit of the new song that God has given me? And I can tell you as I begin to do this, even out of desperation, even out of obedience, that God begins to change my heart. It begins to focus me more upon him when I feel sorry for myself, when I'm in self-doubt and melancholy, the first thing I do is just wait. Listen for that new song, and then I begin to share it. See, I want you to know, church, this morning, God does not belittle your depression. He tells us he sees it, he hears it, and he tells us to wait patiently. He tells us to focus upon him. And then God draws us up, he resurrects us, and he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And then he tells us he'll give us a new song and that we get to share that new song. John Cooper, his life is a life of sadness. Depression caused by circumstances, caused by biology, caused by spiritual attack, caused by the sin done by him, done by others against him. And yet, enter in John Newton. And what does Newton do? He just helps Cooper wait patiently upon the Lord. And God inclines his ear. He hears his cry. And God gives Cooper a new song. And Cooper begins to share that song. 
And can we, in our depression, can we sing a new song? Can we wait patiently? You know, we're told in Isaiah 53 that Jesus was no stranger to sadness. In fact, Isaiah 53 actually describes him as a man of sorrows. And, and you see, what we see in Jesus is the better David. Because Jesus says, my, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. He's putting a face, he's putting words to his sadness. And in his sorrow, he waits patiently upon the Lord. He says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then God begins to give Jesus a new song. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And aren't we now all partakers in this new song that Jesus has sung, that God has given Jesus because he waited patiently? I want to close this way, church. You know, I'm... I'm really anti-three-point sermons that give you three more things to do. Um, drive me crazy, because if you came in here this morning with a hurting heart, if you came in here with a, a spouse this morning is hurting or a child that is hurting, and you're like, cool, our pastor told us three points of how to overcome depression this morning. All you're doing at that point is putting a bigger burden on the person who's depressed. But I want you to know what I've told you this morning doesn't rest upon you. It rests upon the Lord. The only thing that rests upon us this morning is to wait patiently upon the Lord. The rest of what he's saying in the psalm is his work. That he resurrects us. That he gives us a new song. That he puts us in a place where our feet are firm and secure. That he gives us that new song to be able to share with others. And that many people will put their fear and trust in the Lord because of that new song. Church, that's the good news this morning, is that we are called to wait. And in our waiting patiently, God inclines his ear to you. Let's pray. God, we say thank you for your word to us this morning. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who are discouraged, who are depressed. I pray, Lord, that they would not try to escape, but they would press in to this unwanted friend and maybe see what your heart is. And God, for those of us who are trying to help people with depression, God, may you give us your voice May you give us the ability to wait patiently upon you. God, may you give us a new song to sing. And may many see and hear that song and put their faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's give God praise.